This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you heard the announcer say, this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. Anything and everything uh, is okay. Nothing's off limits. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by mailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. and Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, it's Tuesday, so we don't have a bunch to talk about. I'll get to the questions in just a moment. Let me say first, Matthew, I pray you're listening again today. Lots of people have told me how they are praying for you, and I am um, thrilled uh, that you called yesterday. Uh, Lots of people want to tell you that you matter, and the Lord has used your call. Because of your call, um, we got through the station, KSLR, a prayer request today for a man named Jerry. Uh, You don't need his last name, but he is in jail. He's suffering, and a friend cared enough about him to call and ask for prayer. Uh, He's committed suicide a couple of times, or tried to commit suicide a couple of times um, uh, in the last few months. Um, and he's just going through a really difficult time, and and um, his friend has asked for prayer. So we can always be praying. We can always be praying. You know, one of the things that's just sort of, it goes in cycles, but sometimes it gets overwhelming, is there's so much pain. And one of the things that I'm a little um, surprised by, um, disturbed a lot by, is that so many young people are the people in pain. I mean, their lives are just so empty, and all of the the, the options that they're given in this world, they just don't provide anything but more pain. And we got people looking for answers, but never finding them, and I can't imagine how frustrating that is, how painful it is. So I think it's time for all of us as believers to really engage in prayer for the people out there who are hurting. And there's just so many of them. I'm not talking about COVID or anything else. I'm just talking about general pain. 
And that's what happens when a world keeps force-feeding them empty answers to really serious problems. Jesus, we want you to come quickly, but at the same time, we want to redeem the time that we have left, making the most of every opportunity, as Paul says, because the time is short. So we pray that you'll send your spirit to move upon the hearts of these people, especially the young people, Lord. And as your spirit moves, may he lead them and guide them into solid Bible-teaching churches where they can find the answers that will satisfy their soul. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let me go to my first question. It's one of these painful questions. This one is from, wait, i got a call waiting first. Oh, got a caller to the studio. Um, Anonymous says, should we encourage someone like Matthew to serve the Lord? Um, of course we should. Now, I, I don't think Matthew is, he's called three times, and uh, I don't think Matthew's not serving the Lord. Um, I, I think that sometimes we want to distract people and, okay, just serve more, read more. And, and I think that's a dangerous place to begin, Anonymous. So uh, I, I don't think it's fair to assume that he's not serving the Lord. I just think he's struggling while he's doing it. I think the best thing that we can can uh, encourage someone like Matthew to do is, uh, and I think this was a call from yesterday that we didn't get just right at the end of the program. Um, I, I think that the thing that we can encourage all of the Matthews in the world to do is to be with Jesus, hang out with him. I know I say it all the time. I'm not going to stop saying it because that's how simple our problems are solved. Just be with Jesus. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And when you're thinking about suicide, when you're thinking about all the problems in the world, uh, that joy is absent because your focus is in the wrong place. Now, I can't do this on the radio because people aren't watching me. But, but um, you know, the Lord has, has really given me um, a, a picture in my mind that helps me deal with uh, the difficulties and, and the real problems that are out there. There's times, I said a moment ago, when we get so overwhelmed uh, by by the pain all around us, um, all we can do is focus on that pain. And when I do that, and here's the picture, and again, you can't look at me because we're on radio, but but the Lord is always like putting his hand under my chin, and he's just lifting it up, and he's telling me, look higher, look higher. And sometimes it's really difficult to look higher than all of the problems. You know, the problems are like the giants, the mountains that, that Jesus said that can be removed. So all we need to do is focus on him. Look higher. It's almost like I'll, I'll look up a little bit, and Jesus will say, um, uh, no, look higher. Look higher still. It's almost as though he's pushing my chin as high up as the back of my neck will let him push it up. But that's when he reminds me I'm here. And I think we need to remind people of that. Yeah, Matthew and everybody else should serve the Lord. But do you realize, Anonymous, how many people are coming to church every week and not serving the Lord? They come, they sit, they go, and that's the extent of their relationship with God. So I don't think it's fair to assume that Matthew's not serving the Lord. 
uh, I, I just think that all of us, we need to be with Jesus. When we're with Jesus, we're going to serve the Lord because we're going to follow him. But, but uh, I think we have to focus on the relationship part first before the work comes. So, uh, Anonymous, thank you for calling that question in. Here is a question from our email inbox. This one is from Jean. Uh, Francis Chan is being followed by many. That's not a good thing, by the way, Jean. What is known about him is he uh, not part of the new progressive global religious movement, which is drawing all religion together. Some prominent televangelicals, Louis Giglio, Beth Moore, Kenneth Copeland, uh, only to name a few, is Francis Chan part of this movement called Scent? I heard someone speak about this the other night. Um, you know, I, I don't like it when people are lumped together. Louis Giglio is certainly not a um, a, a loose cannon. Um, he's a really good Bible teacher. Um, I, I do things differently than he does, but, but he's not somebody that would be afraid of. Beth Moore uh, is not somebody. I'm not a fan of her preaching style, but but I think she's very conservative and and, and orthodox. Kenneth Copeland is just a, a liar, a false teacher. So uh, be very careful, Gene, of, of lumping those people together. Um, uh, Francis Chan, all you have to do is listen to him. And I think what he is involved with is a movement that is absolutely terrifying and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, we got all these famous pastors uh, or 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 charismatic personalities that are um, are being part of what what's called the woke movement. That sounds silly. It's bad English, but but um, you know they're 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 looking around. They see the pain, and they're taking the let's get together, have a coke solution to it. And I mean that um, in an unkind way. Um, uh, Francis Chan started out so well. Um, book that kind of made him famous was a book called Crazy Love, and uh, it was a, a great treatment of really loving and knowing you're loved by God. Um, but he's just fallen off the map. He gave up his church because he decided he wanted to go and do miracles in Singapore and other places. And um, um, and now it's just nonsense. You listen to him, and it's almost unintelligible. It's all emotion, no substance. And Gene, we have to be really, really careful. He has a big following, but uh, the following uh, of people um, that he has are are um, really empty Christians. I'm not saying they're not saved, but, but there's just no depth. There's no meat. I think one of our problems is that we're looking um, to appeal to emotions Instead of providing substance, instead of providing the unfettered, unfiltered word of God, I think instead what we're doing is we're content just to get an emotional response so everybody feels good when they leave. And um, um, he, he is not someone uh, that, that I think we should be listening to. And yet you're right, on the Internet especially, he has a big following. So pray for them. These people need to repent. They need to get right with God and stay right with Him. And if um, we pray for them, who knows, maybe the Spirit of God will bring them back to that first love that they had. It's hard, Gene. It's really hard being famous. Uh, I wouldn't know because I'm not. 
But, um, you know, when you start getting a lot of attention and when you're more concerned about how many followers you have on social media than how many really radical born-again believers you have in your church, then we've taken the wrong course. We, we've just fallen off the, the right track. So be careful of Francis Chan. I, I, I cannot recommend him at all any longer, and that really is a shame. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Valerie. She says, I don't come to your church, but like to listen to your studies. Well, thank you, Valerie. Uh, in your Wednesday night message, you said that half of Christian kids who grew up in church are sexually active. How can we change that? Um, I, I was quoting a Pew Research survey um, from um, it's 2021, from 2019, Valerie. And uh, as far as I know, that's that's probably a pretty accurate survey. Um, but it's a sad one, isn't it? It's a sad one. We got kids who are growing up in churches, and instead of being in love with Jesus. They're giving in to their flesh instead of pursuing holiness and purity. They're 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 pursuing the destruction of their flesh, and it really is um, a horrible thing that's happening in the church. But remember, so much of the church world right now, so much of the church world uh, is is so narrow, so. Lacking depth. The Bible just isn't taught. We tell studies. We Even in our youth groups, we sit around in chairs and couches and try to be cool and talk about social justice and events of day. When, when what's needed, the only way we're going to change things, Valerie, is to be in the Word. Teach the Bible. Let the Spirit of God work through the Word of God with supernatural power. And change people's hearts. The truth is, somebody who is sexually active, who claims to be a Christian, doesn't love Jesus. It's that simple. And I think we really and truly need to be careful about that. I also think, Valerie, that parents, and I, I assume you're a parent here, uh, that's why this hits your heart. Um, uh, we, we Parents need to supervise our children's social media time. Um, when kids, and I'm just going to say flat out, if if kids are spending more time in social media than they are in the Word of God, then they're going to fall into sin. They're going to do what the world does. Social media doesn't care about right and wrong. In fact, in social media, most of it, there is no right and wrong. So we've got kids in churches who have unrestricted access to computers and phones, and we don't supervise them. And that's what's taking up their time instead of the Word of God. And moms and dads, you're responsible for that. How we could give our children, I don't care whether they're teenagers, you know, 13, 14 years old, junior high school, or high schoolers, I don't care if they're 18-year-old seniors, as long as they're in your house, why do they need a computer that they carry on their pocket and distracts them from doing anything that's that's beneficial? I know I sound like a dinosaur. Well, you can't do that. Every kid has a phone. 
They don't need to. They don't need to. A phone is a privilege, and unless someone is trustworthy, they shouldn't have that privilege. It's that straightforward. And we've got parents that simply wouldn't even consider not giving their kids phones. Paying for them, in fact. And the problem, of course, is we're paying for an enemy to destroy them. So, again, depending on where they're being fed, in the world, uh, on social media, um, or in the Word of God, in a church that teaches the Bible, what they're going to do is do what everybody else does. Let me say one other thing, Valerie, and I think this is probably the most important thing of all. A lot of the kids that grew up in Christian homes aren't saved kids. You know, they went to youth group, they answered on altar call, um, maybe they got baptized, who knows. But until they've had their own encounter with Jesus Christ, you see, they can't be saved by mom and dad's faith. They've got to be weaned off mom and dad's faith. They've got to take a stand for Jesus on their own. And if they're unwilling to do that, then this is the kind of world that we're going to live in. breaks our heart. But remember, taking your kids to church uh, doesn't save them. Uh, a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the only thing that saves them. And until they're saved, they're going to do things that we Christian parents wish they wouldn't do. We've got to supervise our kids. We've got to hold them accountable. We've got to help them face consequences when they start making adult decisions like becoming sexually active. We've got to kind of hold their feet to the fire and say, this is a, an adult issue now. You want to be an adult. You have to deal with this problem. And we just don't, unfortunately. So I hope that Helps you a little bit, Valerie. It is a sad, sad commentary on the world that we live in. Here is a question from... Let me go to the next one. I thought I had a phone call. Chat wants to know, um, would you still believe in God if Israel was completely nuked off the face of the earth? Uh, Chat, please forgive me. I don't mean this personally, but that's a silly question. Why would you even ask that question? Israel has not been nuked off the face of the earth. I believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. I believe that Israel is going to be there when Jesus returns. I believe that that's going to happen in the relative near future. Um, but but I, I can't understand a question like this. It's hypothetical. It makes no sense. God has done a pretty good job of protecting Israel and uh, keeping them in the place they need to be. And uh, so, Chet, your question just doesn't make sense. I don't want to spend any time answering it. I would ask you, Chet, um, if you consider Israel's history, the fact that They were separated from their homeland for 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years. And then they were gathered together as a nation again in the same homeland. Wouldn't you consider that a miracle? Wouldn't you consider that a miracle? Why wouldn't you believe if God could do that? 
I mean, he predicted he would. He did it. Here's the question. Would you believe if God did that kind of a miracle? The truth is, there's sin in your life and you don't want to stop sinning, so it's easier to ask dumb questions. Here's a question from our email inbox from Thomas. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. After reading Philemon, I was wondering whatever happened with Onesimus. Was he accepted and restored by Philemon? Did Philemon send him back after Paul sent? <laughs> what became of Onesimus? My love to you and Mama Thomas. Hey, uh, Thomas, I love the question. I'm laughing uh, because um, not only was he restored, forgiven by Philemon, um, but um, he was a huge figure in the first century church. He became the one of the overseeing bishops in the area of in and around Ephesus, meaning he had a really important position, was a man of great influence. So when Paul saw him, and, and you know his name means uh, useless, and um, Onesimus, he's, when Paul says he, he's profitable or useful now, uh, after getting saved, boy, did he ever prove that he was um, profitable and useful uh, as the Spirit of God directed his steps. Uh, but he became a giant figure in the, in the, in the early church. And um, there's, there's, uh, it's a great, great story. You know, um, Thomas, you've heard me teach the book of Philemon before. Uh, I've taught it here several times over the years, over many years. Uh, it is a treasure. It, it's about forgiveness, but more than that, it's a book about faith. It's a book about God taking care of his own when faced with impossible circumstances. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And uh, it was in Rome while Paul had some modicum of freedom to preach from his uh, the place where he was being held captive by Roman authorities. This is before he went into the Mamertine prison. Um, one day Onesimus heard this funny-looking, bull-legged, hunched-over, broke-nosed man talking about freedom. And the Holy Spirit fell upon Philemon, and he thought, well, well I'm not free. I ran away from, from my slave owner, but, but I'm not free. I'm always looking over my shoulder. And uh, it probably didn't happen like this, but I always imagine Paul saying, wouldn't you like the feeling of really being free in Christ? And to him, that was just too good to be true. And so he said, yes. And he gave his heart to Jesus. He served with Paul fruitfully, helped Paul in his ministry from that, uh, that, that place where he was being held captive. And then one day the Lord spoke to his heart and said, you've got to go back and make things right with Philemon. Now God was working in uh, advance, but um, as it turns out, Philemon from Colossae uh, he also got saved under the ministry of the Apostle Paul at an earlier time. And he had been raised by the Lord to be the pastor of the church in Colossae. And uh, when when Philemon would have come to Paul and say say to him, you know, I've got to go back, and Paul would have thought, well, well, you're so much help for me here. Why do you have to go back? And then Onesimus would tell him the story. I, I'm, a, I'm a runaway slave. The Holy Spirit's convicted me. I need to go make this right. They, they could kill me. 
because that's theft is a capital offense for a slave. But I got to go do it. And he would begin to tell Paul the story. And I always imagine when he says, well, where are you going back? And he said, I got to go back to Colossae. And Paul would think, I know people in Colossae. And he would say, well, my slave owner is a wealthy man. His name is Philemon. And Paul would start smiling and Onesimus would look at him like, what are you smiling about? He says, because that's my Philemon. He owes me his life. I was used by God to bring him to faith in Jesus Christ. And I set him up in the churches there. Oh, this is going to be great. And he would put his arms on Onesimus and say, see, you can trust God. And he went back, and of course, that wonderful bit of arm twisting that Paul did towards uh, Philemon in that letter, uh, believe me, the Holy Spirit really prepared his heart. And he and Onesimus became brothers, and uh, the rest is church history. Great question, Thomas. Thank you. I, I love that book so very, very deeply. Okay, do I have time for another question this half of the program? Hey, I want to thank um, uh, Linda McMillan last night. Paula came home smiling, said, oh, her teaching was just wonderful last night. Uh, LadiesCalvaryEssay.com. You can listen to her teaching last night at the Ladies Bible Study. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left on the Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions hey just to give you a heads up and i don't usually do it this far in advance but a week from today Next Tuesday, I'm going to have a guest on the program, Pastor Hector Velarde from Calvary Chapel of North San Antonio. Wonderful guy. He's uh, just come and taken that church over from the founding pastor. And uh, I thought it'd be great. We've got listeners all over the San Antonio area, of course. And uh, I thought it'd be great to give you a chance to get to know him. He is a wonderful guy. loves God. And uh, so he'll be on the program next Tuesday um, on AM 630, the word with me. Okay, let's get to our next question. It comes from Deb. Pastor Ron, does the new temple have to be built before the rapture? Also, since no one knows the day or the hour, how can we know that the Great Tribulation will last for seven years? Um, Devin, the, the, the new temple does not, will not, 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 does not, will not be built before the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the next thing that's going to come uh, on the, along on the prophetic horizon. And um, once that happens and the church is taken out of the way, then the man that we call the Antichrist is going to be revealed, and he's going to be the one who directs the rebuilding of the uh, the temple, and he will do so on the same footing or foundation that Solomon built his temple on. And he is going to be hailed as the greatest man of peace in the history of the world. 
And, uh, of course, we know that isn't the case. Now, here's how we can know that the Great Tribulation is going to last for seven years. From Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of Daniel regarding the end time. Um, he said there will be uh, the total of Daniel's weeks are 70 weeks. Now, a week, speaking prophetically in a Jewish context, is a group of seven years. So there's going to be seven times 70. That's, that's till the fulfillment of all things, till Jesus comes back. But he also says that after 62 sevens and seven sevens, so that's 69 sevens, the, the anointed one, Christ, will be cut off with nothing. And that's when uh, there was sort of a pause in the prophetic countdown. Uh, we talked on Palm Sunday about how Jesus had to be um, proclaimed the Messiah, had to, to reveal himself as the Christ on exactly the right day, April 6, 32 A.D., 173,880 days from the time that um, the, the prophet or the, uh, the the order to rebuild um, Jerusalem was was issued. That was King Artaxerxes uh, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter two. We know when that was. So now we've got 69 weeks up to that point. It's happened. The rapture then happens, and then um, the clock will start again. Um, when the Great Tribulation begins. And there could be a slight delay in the Great Tribulation beginning, but but basically we know that all that's left to fulfill all prophecy is the last week of Daniel, or the 70th week of Daniel. And that means, uh, Devin, that what we're in right now is sort of a pause. Um, dispensationalists like me, we, we, uh, we call this the, the Dispensation of Grace, where God is no longer dealing with Israel, but he's dealing uh, with with his church, with Gentiles, and um, waiting for the last number of, or the fulfillment of the Gentile number to be brought in. And then the Great Tribulation will begin. That last seven years is going to be the worst time ever in the history of the world. And... Um, We'll be in heaven with Jesus during that time. There will be a great revival that goes on, Devin, those who refuse to take the mark of the beast. But please um, understand that uh, we know it's going to be seven years. The very next thing for us is the rapture of the church, and that could come basically at any moment. Good question. I like prophecy. Um, here's an anonymous question. I see fewer young people that even desire marriage and before. Why is that so? Oh, there's a lot of reasons, Anonymous. We talked in early in the program. Kids are different. Young people are different. Um, they, they watch parents divorce and remarry. They they see uh, professing Christians um, who are, are sexually active uh, without marriage. And my goodness, if you can have sex without the responsibility of marriage... Uh, unsaved people just want that to be. There are some who genuinely are distressed because of the condition of this world, and they can't imagine bringing a child into a world like this. Uh, that's just an excuse, and it's certainly not biblical. But remember, we're talking primarily about unbelievers. But truth is, they want to have sex. They don't want to have the responsibility that comes along with it. So um, what's the the benefit of getting married? 
um, women who want to be married should not give their bodies away. They shouldn't do it anyway because Jesus, well, it breaks his heart. But, but why would a man marry you if he has all the benefits, the physical benefits of marriage, without any responsibilities? Um, that, that's that's the answer, anonymous. We just see people who don't care about the Lord anymore. You know, when we throw off all restraint, sexual restraint, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing right, it's just what's right for you or wrong for you. Um, when we we give our flesh, no matter how old we are, that license, uh, we're going to find that that uh, we're going to do the wrong thing instead of the right thing, and we're going to do the wrong thing 100% of the time. So that's what's going on, and it is a tragedy that that these kids, young people, um, I, they're kids to me. I'm almost 70 years old. Uh, it is a tragedy that um, these kids are missing out on the perfect will of God for their lives. But that's the reason. Flesh, 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 flesh. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is another anonymous question. Interesting one. Do you think Christians should pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States? Um, anonymous, I don't. I don't. We're to pledge allegiance only to Jesus Christ. Now, I, I don't mean to imply that the Pledge of Allegiance is evil or anything like that. But um, Jesus said, don't, don't make your oath at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, uh, patriotism is a good thing. But um, the only thing Christians should pledge allegiance to is to the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom all life flows. And that's the only thing. So don't get mad at me if you're out there thinking, well, he's not a patriot. Jesus comes first, way before any commitment to this country. Now, there are things that we have to do if you are a career military man, you're going to swear an oath to defend and protect the United States of America. If you're a cop, you're going to do the same thing. If you're a congressman or a president-elect, a senator, you're going to make that pledge, a Supreme Court justice. But the only thing a Christian should be pledging allegiance to is to the one who created them, the one who bought them out of their sin and gave them new life? Good question. Brian says, well, we gotta, let me go to a phone call first. Got Steve on line one from San Antonio. Steve, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, thank you. I have a, just a quick question for you, and I'll hang up. Um, I was just curious. I mean, we talk about on, on Good Friday, you know, if Jesus was crucified on Friday, I did go to church, and someone was mentioning that it possibly could have been on Thursday. So I'll hang up and let you respond if you thought it was Thursday or Friday. Thank you, Stephen. In a Jewish calendar, it would be um, on Friday. But remember that Friday starts, now if you look at our calendar, um, Friday comes at midnight. Um, in a Jewish calendar, a Jewish time frame, uh, Friday would have started at 6 o'clock on what we call Thursday. 
So the three days and three nights in the in the earth doesn't mean three full days. It's a, just a very Jewish way of saying that any part of a day is considered a day. So when Jesus said on the third day he will rise, that means he was there Friday, he was there Saturday, and he was in the in the tomb on Sunday when he rose. Uh, but but it's a little difficult for us because our day starts uh, at midnight. Uh, we change from Thursday to Friday. And uh, that happens on a Jewish uh, calendar at 6 o'clock the previous evening. So, um, again, it's just a very Jewish way of saying any part of a day is a day. And uh, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no implication anywhere in Scripture that Jesus was in that tomb for three 24-hour periods of time. I think it is a lot of upset about nothing, really. Uh, you just have to understand the context. Steve, if you like to dig into stuff like this, let me suggest a book for you. Um, the, the book, The Life and Times of the Messiah, by a man named Alfred Edersheim. Uh, and he'll take you right into the garden and the tomb and everything else. And uh, it's just a, a one. I, I don't think anybody should ever read the Gospels without having access to Edersheim. Uh, that book is public domain. He's been dead for well over 100 years. Um, but um, um, you can get it free on the internet. But uh, I, I like it so much that I have I've had copies here that I've given away, and we always keep hard copies of it here. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the call. Here is a question. The question from Brian. I was told that to understand Paul's epistles, you have to view everything he wrote in a Jewish context. I thought Paul was a Christian. Brian, that's because you didn't check your brain into the door. Paul was a Christian. He was a former Jew who converted to Christ. Now, I've heard this over and over, the, the whole idea from Jews and, and some easily influenced Gentiles. Well, you know, before you can be a good Christian, you first have to be a good Jew. That's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Now, there are things written in Paul's epistles that need to be understood from a Jewish background, but not in a Jewish context at all. So just take the plain meaning of it. Paul makes it clear when he's writing to Jews or when he's writing to Gentiles or when he's writing to a combined audience. So uh, Paul was a born-again believer. It is so frustrating to me that we fall. And this is, I think, the, the result of really, really shallow Bible teaching. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's shameful that we Christians are so easily influenced. Well, Jesus was a Jew, and, and those Messianic Jews, they know stuff. They don't. They got the same Bible you have, the same Bible I have. And when Paul gave his life to Jesus Christ, he didn't become a Messianic Jew. Neither did Peter, neither did James or John or any of the other disciples who would become apostles. They became Christians, and over and over in the book of Acts, they were first called the way, later in Antioch was the first time that they were called Christians. They, they weren't Jews who walked around trying to convert everybody to Judaism, with the exception of those from Jerusalem, um, who Paul pretty much scolds as legalists and... and uh, Confronted even Peter to his face. James, the Lord's half-brother, um, seems to be the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And it was completely Jewish. And and being completely Jewish, they had a tendency to hold on to, to the religion that they were raised with. But 
the, the, the epistles that were given mitigate against the fact of of, uh, of understanding Jewishness. I will say this, Brian, to understand. Excuse me, to understand um, the the ministry of Jesus. It has to be viewed in Jewish context because that's what it was. Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. He came to fulfill the law. And what he's saying uh, in in his sermons, what he's saying in his private discussions, uh, is is as Jewish as it can be, but but not so with the Apostle Paul's um, um, epistles at all. Thank you, Brian. Use your brain. You're doing well. Anonymous says, I feel guilty because I don't want the rapture to come until after I die. It fills me with anxiety. Am I wrong? Yeah, you really are anonymous. And, and um, you know, the, the one thing, uh, we had a discussion in our pastor's discipleship class a few weeks ago, um, similar to this. Um you know, we say Jesus come quickly, and there are people who say, "Well, I don't want him to come because there's so many people who are who are lost, and so many people who are going to be be taken into judgment." There is nothing, and I want to make this as clear as I can. There is nothing that any real Christian should not want more than to be with Jesus. Now, I don't want to die to get there. I'm rooting for the rapture. But but all I want to see, Anonymous, is his face. I, I don't know what about the rapture could fill you with anxiety. I can suggest, maybe, not knowing who you are or knowing anything about you, I can suggest maybe that there's some things going on in your life that you know the Lord doesn't want there. And if that's the case, get right with God. Hang out with him. Spend more time with him. Don't look at this world like it's the end all. This world is just sort of a transition place for us. As we await that that moment, Peter calls being with Jesus the goal of our salvation. And so, yeah, um, I don't want you to feel guilty about anything, but I want you to change your perspective. If there's anything in your life that matters more than seeing Jesus, then probably you need to repent. And this is one of those things you take to the Spirit of God. I mean, He already knows what you're experiencing, so ask Him to show you. Open your Bible and ask Him to show you, why don't I want to be with Jesus? Why does that scare me? And typically it's because we don't know Jesus well enough to know how wonderful he is, how much he loves us. We don't have a view, an eternal view of things. We've got a temporal view of things. And there's always a fear of the unknown. I get that. But the truth is that seeing Jesus ought to be the one thing that motivates every single one of us every day. Paul said, I'm caught in between. I don't know What's best, to, to, to depart and be with Jesus is better by far, but to remain here means fruitful service, fruitful labor in the Lord. 
And at that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart, and he said, well, as for me, I know that my course here will continue. But to be with Jesus is better by far than anything that we can we can imagine. You know, Anonymous, I've been, we've talked about this a little bit on the program with questions that we've had. But, you know, the world here now is a sad place. I'm not being negative. I'm not, I, I, I'm not talking about escapism or anything else. It's just all of the pain that is around us. We've seen families lose loved ones with this pandemic. We've seen an election rip the body of Christ in half in 2020. But Christians who can't love one another because we have different political views. And and usually when you see people who aren't anxious for the rapture, it's because earth is their home. Abraham, we're told, was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. I think too many of us were looking for heaven on earth when this was never intended to be heaven. It's a hard world that we live in. And people are hurting, people are dying. People are empty. People, young people in particular, are attempting suicide at unspeakable rates. It's time to go be with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work here. We're to occupy till he comes, Jesus tells us. It means we're to produce fruitful labor. We're, we're to, to evangelize the people in our own sphere of influence. And maybe you're not sharing your faith. Again, maybe there's some sin in your life that you're just not ready to get rid of. But I promise you, there's nothing better. Nothing better that could happen to you today or me today or anybody else today than to see Jesus. And Anonymous, that's going to happen soon. And we need to be ready. Thank you for the question. Five minutes. Oh, I thought that's gone half, gone quickly. Here's a question from Kent. He says, It feels strange to me reading about the miracles of feeding the multitudes. The disciples were there for the 5,000, but seem to have forgotten when it comes to feeding the 4,000. How could they forget? Um, Kent, have you ever had something God's sort of shown off for you? answered a prayer in a miraculous way or you were in a situation that you didn't think you could survive and, and, and suddenly you, 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 you got through it and it felt like this huge burden was lifted and then just a week or so later you start worrying about a bunch of other stuff. Well, they forgot the same way you forget or I forget. We're focused on sort of, okay, Lord, what have you done for me lately instead of, God, look how good you are. And I understand the tension here, but the truth is the disciples were just like you and they were just like me. What we encounter in front of us takes all of our time and our attention. And if it doesn't make any sense to us, then then we, we just forget about the power of God. I'll tell you something else, Kent. Um, when we have a need, when there's something that seems to be so big, we, we just, we, only God can intervene. 
Often prayer is the last thing that we do when it should be the first thing we do. Well, the disciples were just like you and me. They saw 5,000 men, probably another 10,000 women and children. They had only a little boy's lunch, two tiny sardine-sized fish, and five small barley loaves, the, the, the bread that the poor could afford. And the disciples were actively engaged in passing it out. They were part of the miracle. They would see the the food multiply in their hands. Not only that, but when they were done, they each of them picked up a basket full of leftovers, spilling over-the-top leftovers. So each of the disciples had their own souvenir of that miraculous moment. Oh, they, they must have talked about it for days. But suddenly, a couple of weeks goes by, there's another big crowd gathered, and they forget all about the feeding of the 5,000, wonder what Jesus is going to do now. So that's how they forgot, because their eyes were off Jesus, their eyes were on the one thing that they were concerned about at the time. Okay, last question of the day. Uh, I can do this one. I've got two minutes. William says, how do you feel about men with beards and tattoos? Um, William, I love them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a super beard fan, um, just in the sense that um, probably jealousy, I can't grow one. But um, I actually like tattoos. I certainly don't want crass tattoos, but but I like color and I like I I, I like the art. Uh, I don't have any tattoos, um, but I think it's it's um, somebody with tattoo and the freedom to to tattoo themselves. Um, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. Some of my staff here is tatted pretty good and. Uh, I don't think I have anybody with a beard. Yeah, I got I got a pastor with a beard, one pastor with a beard, and um, I love him with all of my heart. The one thing I would say, and I tell my pastors this, William, especially dealing with tattoos, that if they go really heavy with tattoos, they're going to be limiting the number of people that they're able to minister to because those tattoos are going to make some people so uncomfortable that they just won't hear anything from them. But but I think I feel about men with beards and tattoos the way I feel about men without beards and tattoos. I love them. God loves them. And he wants to use them. So if you want to get a tattoo, if you want to grow a beard, uh, if you're married, if your wife is in agreement, go for it. Jesus has no problem with it at all. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this has been The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at CalvarySA.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.